once. <laughs> well, welcome. My name's Aaron, and I am uh, one of the pastors here. I want to say welcome to all of you in this room. I want to say welcome to those of you watching online today on this Father's Day weekend. We are truly honored that you're here. Today, we do continue in this series called One. But before we get to that, I want to talk to you about something, man, that really, honestly, it kind of ticks me off. And what I mean by that is... Um, Dads are often the butt of the jokes, aren't they? Pun intended. And one of the things that I hate, if you watch it, you know, commercials or, you know, major television networks and, you know, different series that they put on, oftentimes dads are displayed as as weak and passive and disengaged. And and I hate this because, and I hate that stereotype because I personally know many fathers, some who are in this room, many are in this room, who are staying in the fight for their kids that they are staying engaged, they're not weak, they're not passive, but they understand that they have an incredibly important role, and they're stepping up to the plate. And I've even saw and watched some dads actually step aside, and and I shouldn't say step aside, they've actually stepped into the lives of other dads and other men and helped them, like, get back in the fight for those men that maybe have made some mistakes along the way and have been wounded along the way, and maybe they've taken themselves out of the fight. And I'm watching other dads, men in this room, that are helping other dads get back into the fight. And so can you do me a favor? Can we just give a big trace of welcome to all the dads in this room today on Father's Day? So, Well, over the last uh, couple weeks, we have been in a series called One, if you're new here to Trace. Uh, We started this series a couple weeks ago, and the idea behind this series is that we're going to kind of pull the veil back and um, pull the curtains back, if you will, and help you to see and learn some things that are behind the pages of the people in Scripture. And hopefully as you get to know these people a little bit better, that the Scriptures will actually come to life and the stories will come to life for you in a new way. So we kicked off this series by looking at the book of Genesis last week. We looked at the book of Matthew, and today we're going to be looking at the book of James. Now, James is one of my favorite books, and I'll unfold that for you uh, because there's uh, several different reasons why that's the case. It's not uncommon for me to have people want to sit down and have a conversation with me about faith. They may have questions, they may have doubts, and so I love to sit down with people and talk to them about, you know, what it looks like to have faith in Jesus, and it's not uncommon for someone to look at me and say, hey, where, where do I get started? Like, I'm new to all this. Like, how do I get started? And the first place that I'm going to point them is the book of James. Because James is probably, I would say it is, the most practical book in all of the Bible. There's only five chapters, and we're going to encourage you to read through all five of those chapters this week, even if you've done so recently. And uh, so I point people to the book of James, really practical, basic Christian living. But there's another really big reason why I point people to the book of James, and here's why. James is probably one of the best apologetics, and you're going to hear me use that word several times today, and when you hear the word apologetics, it's just a defense for the Christian faith, but he, he's probably one of the best apologetics, one of the best defenses that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, and so we're going to get to that in just a few moments. If you've been coming to Trace for any amount of time, you know that we encourage this reading plan called D1, and the idea behind this is that if you're not discipling anyone else, you should be discipling yourself. So disciple one, that's where D1 comes from. And at the bottom of this, you can get one of these stickers, if you don't have one of these, to put in your Bible or to keep somewhere where you can be reminded. At the bottom of this, we give people kind of a a starting place if they don't know where to start. And we always start with James. And we take them from James to John to Acts to Romans. And those are strategically put there for a reason. And so we point people to the book of James. And so before we get into what I want to uncover today, I'm going to take a selfish moment as a dad. Because not only do I point 
and I should say we point to the book of James when it comes to people getting started in their faith, but I've done so with our very own kids. And so if I can just have a selfish moment, since it is Father's Day, I want to show you a video of my three-year-old daughter who almost memorized the entire first chapter of James. Check this out. All right, you can start when you're ready. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greeting is considered a pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because of you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish his work, so that you may return complete, not lacking in any. Then you lack wisdom, should ask God who gives you gently to all without finding fault, it will begin to. When you ask, you must believe not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown past by the wind. Such a person does not expect or receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable, and all they do. Believers in homeless circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich will take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away with ever wildfire. For the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plants, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even as they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres on the trial, because having stood the test, that person should not receive the crown of life. That the Lord has promised to those who love Him. When tempted, one should say, "God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil." But each person, does, but nor does He tempt anyone. But nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is dragged away by the, is dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it, it gives birth to sin, but when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly light, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose. He chose to give us word of the word of truth, that he might kind of first roof of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Every good and perfect everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But human anger does not deceive does it does not produce does not produce the righteousness that God the right that God desires. Very good, sweet girl. Hey, that is awesome. How old are you right now? Three. You're but three. I'm almost four, so I can do that. Yeah, I love you. Great job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> three years old. What's your excuse, right? What's your I wanted to show you that so I could show you how awesome of a dad that I am. No, actually, I can't take any credit for that. That was all Emily working with our kids. But uh, I, again, yeah, of course, I take pride in that. That's incredibly cute, uh, but proud of her, too. She worked really hard to get that far. So who's James? Like, who is James? 
And now to answer that question, what I hope to do for you today is unfold some things in the New Testament for you that maybe if you've read, you potentially have overlooked, or maybe if you're not a Bible reader, our hope is that you will become a Bible reader, but this may come at, as a surprise to you because there was a point in James' life where he went from unbelief to belief. And so who is James? Well, to begin with, he's Jesus' younger brother. Now, this is where we just need to pause, right? Because sometimes we kind of think about Jesus and everything that revolved around Jesus and in his family, and maybe that it was more majestic than it was messy, but I can assure you it was probably more messy than it was majestic. I mean, you got to imagine at some point, at some point, Mary looks at James, the younger brother of Jesus, and says, James, why can't you be like your older brother Jesus? Right? At some point, that probably happened. Now, James, if you ask me, he's got a pretty good defense. Because he's perfect, Mom. Literally, he's perfect. Like, how can you compare him to me? That's not fair. Guys, I can assure you the dynamics within Jesus' family, and I'm going to unfold unfold this for you uh, through the Scriptures. They weren't probably what you thought they were. And the fact that Jesus' very own brother had doubts that he was who he said he was, but later at some point comes to faith that his brother actually is the Messiah, is probably one of the strongest Christian apologetics. I'm going to unfold that for you. Let's begin by reading something out of John chapter 7 that maybe you've never read before. Here's what it says. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, also called tabernacles. And Jesus' brothers, his brothers, said this to him. Now I'm going to read this in the tone in which I think they said this. Here's how I think it came out. Hey, hey Jesus, why don't you leave here and, and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles? You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, then you should go show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Let that settle in. For those of you that have ever had doubt Uh, be a part of your story. And by a part of your story, it could be part of your husband or wife's story or your kid's story or maybe your story. Understand you would have fit right in with Jesus' very own brothers. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that was like? Now, sometimes we talk about empathy, right? We talked about empathy a couple months ago and we talked about the importance of empathizing with others, especially because today it seems like it's a lost art. But Jesus seemed to be one of the best at this. And so often we talk about Jesus that way, that way, right? I mean, the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, like he can empathize with our pain and suffering because he went through it himself. But have you ever thought about this? Because I don't think we have. Have we ever thought about what it would be like to actually empathize with Jesus? Have we ever thought of what it would be like to empathize with the fact that Jesus maybe didn't have the easiest of upbringings? And the fact that his very own brothers are taunting him, are taunting him, tells me that there were some crazy dynamics happening behind the scenes. So I wonder what that did with Jesus. Now, some of us may, we may say, well, yeah, but he was God, and he could handle it. Understand he was fully human, and he was fully God, and the fully human part meant he could fully feel. I wonder how it felt to have your very own brothers not believe in you. And this is, if you ask me, another um, aspect of the scriptures that point to their validity Because wouldn't you want to show, like if you're trying to prove something to be in existence, don't you want to make that story, specifically the Messiah, don't you want to make that story sound as appealing as possible? So to say that his brothers, his very own brothers, 
don't believe in him, it doesn't help your case. I wonder what that was like for Jesus. I want to show you something else that we read in Mark chapter 3 that is incredibly interesting. And the setting of this particular passage is Jesus is going to find himself in a home. And it says that that home got so filled with people that there was not even room to eat. Like it was crowded. And even his own friends were like trying to get him out of the house. Like, Jesus, what are you doing, man? This is ridiculous. You, got, you can't even move in there. And then his family shows up. Here's where we pick up in Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 31. Just then his mother and brothers showed up. Standing outside, they relayed a message that they wanted a word with him. Now, he was surrounded by the crowd when this message was given to him, that your mothers and brothers and sisters are outside looking for you. Jesus responded, Who do you think are my mother and brothers? Looking around, taking in everyone seated around him, he said, Right here, right in front of you, my mother and my brothers. Obedience, don't miss this statement. Obedience is thicker than blood. The person who obeys God will be my brother and sister and mother. The person who obeys God. I'm going to have to infer some things here, but my guess is that Jesus is thinking, oh, my brothers. Now, again, we know that Mary was bought into this. Joseph was bought into this. But based on what we read, his brothers weren't. We don't know about his sister, but at least his brothers were not bought into this idea that he was the Messiah, and so he's in there with people who believe in him, who want to do the will of God, and his family's outside, and as far as we know, he doesn't go out. He just stays in there. Can you imagine the tension that begins to build, and in Jesus's mind, it's like, I'm going to spend time with people that understand that I'm here to do the will of God, that I'm, I'm here to start a new kingdom, and these guys, the people that are with me right here, they're buying into this, so they're my brother and my brothers and my sister. Imagine the tension, right? Because outside that room, there are real people, his mom and brothers and sisters, and they're sitting there waiting. Is he, is he going to is he gonna come out? And you, again, let's put some flesh on the story. Some of you think of your own kids. I'll think of mine in this moment. One of them had to say, see, Mom, I told you he wasn't going to come out. I mean, I hate Jesus. Gosh, I hate Jesus. Like, he's always causing, I mean, something like that was probably said. We have to understand that there was a reality taking place behind the scenes in Jesus' own family, and the fact that his brothers didn't believe in him had to create a source of tension. And among his brothers was this guy named James. Many believe he was the second born right after Jesus. And so James is starting to allow this tension to build within him. Like, man, like Jesus keeps, like he's messing up everything. And the resentment and the bitterness and the anger towards his very own brother, who seems to be putting on this charade about this whole Messiah thing. Man, the family dynamics had to have been pretty interesting. Let me pause there. Have you ever been wrong about something? More, more importantly, have you ever been wrong about someone? Emily and I recently watched this movie uh, called Case for Christ. I'd read that book a long time ago. Anybody else read the book or seen the movie? It's on Netflix if you want to watch it for free right now. And a very interesting book, a really good apologetic book. And here's why. This book, it's a real story, and it talks about this um, journalist, this investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he's very proud of his atheism. And at some point in their life, his wife becomes a follower of Jesus. And when she becomes a follower of Jesus, everything inside of him is like, whoa, 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 like that was not supposed to be our story. Like, we were supposed to do this atheism thing together. Like, what are you doing? And everything in him thought, like, my wife has just joined a cult. Like, what am I going to do about this? And so 
he did what he knew how to do. He knew how to investigate. He was an investigative journalist. And so he set out to look at the facts and only the facts because he knew if I can prove the resurrection wrong, then that's the house of cards that the rest of this thing is built on and it will all come tumbling down. So he went after the resurrection. I just have to prove that the resurrection didn't take place. And so he interviewed scholars and skeptics alike and he kept compiling this list of facts. And when he gets to the end of this list and uh, his time of investigating, he can't help but notice that the facts are pointing to the truth of the resurrected Lord versus against it. And so at some point, he has to sit down with his wife and say, I was wrong. And based on the facts, I'm now a believer. Uh, interesting enough, after Emily and I watched this movie, she looked at me and she said, I'm so glad that I have a husband that never has to look at me and admit that he was wrong about anything. <laughs> if lightning strikes, you're far enough away. Have you ever been wrong about something? You see, at some point, James does go from the unconvinced to the convinced. But what in the world, think about this, let's, let's ask a very practical question. What in the world would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world? What would it take for you to move from the unconvinced to the con convinced? Now, we know that Jesus ultimately ends up going to a Roman cross to be crucified, the worst possible death. And I, I don't know this. Again, I'm going to have to infer some of the, this, but I believe that James was possibly somewhere in the crowd, right? This is his brother. And he's watching this take place. He's watching the crucifixion take place. And inside of him, there's probably still some kind of love and devotion to the fact that this is still my brother. And he's watching his oldest brother go through the worst possible agony known to mankind. It was the worst possible way to die. And he's looking and he's maybe thinking to himself, Jesus, why didn't you give up the act when there was still time? Like, why did you allow it to get this far? And he's watching his brother just die and, and gasp for breath. And at this point, I believe James still thinks, like, this is all an act, but why did you carry through with it to this point? Now, we know that three days after they took him off the cross, that a handful of women come and they find an empty tomb. Now, I don't know this, but my guess is that that news gets back to Mary pretty quickly, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus. And my guess is Mary probably is the one who shares it with James. And maybe, maybe it's at that point in time where James decides he's going to actually believe that his big brother is the Messiah. But I actually don't think so. I think at that point, James is probably thinking to himself, oh, man, here we go. Somebody stole the body. Like this charade continues. I'm never going to be able to get rid of this. The charade continues. Somebody stole his body, and now they're going to claim that he rose from the grave. But here's what we do know. For the next 40 days, Jesus appears to several different people. And in these appearances, we get a lot of really strong apologetics, specifically in one particular appearance. And let me talk about this. And again, apologetic is just a defense that the resurrection actually happened. Outside of the scriptures, you can read different historical documents from historians that talk about there was a time not too long after the resurrection of Jesus uh, or when they found the empty tomb that there was a mass conversion of Jewish people to become Christians. Now, let me make sure you understand the context of what that would have been for those Jewish people in that day. For a Jewish man to become a Christian, 
he would have been disowned by the rest of the Jewish community. And most likely he would have been put in prison. And it was also likely that he could have been stoned to death. There was no good motive for someone to become a follower of Jesus unless, unless, unless. They actually were one of those 500 eyewitness accounts that saw a resurrected Lord. And there was one other person that was critically important to having other people in the future actually believe that the resurrection actually happened. Let me show you what, how Paul records this when he's writing to the church in Corinth in chapter 15. Here's what Paul says. For what I received, I, pa- I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, also known as Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500. Again, you can read about this big mass conversion, approximately 500 people in other documents outside of Christian literature. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to who? James. Can you imagine what that encounter was like? Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul referring to himself. Some scholars believe that it was as soon as 15 years after this encounter with Jesus and James that James sits down to write his letter around A.D. 45. There's some debate about this, but if that's the case, this would, be the, this would actually be the oldest document in our New Testament for those of you that like taking notes. So let me ask you one more time. Have you ever been wrong about something? Because we have to understand that when James is standing in front of a guy, <clears throat> it looks a lot like his older brother Jesus. And this guy has holes in his wrists and his ankles. He realizes, I just made a really big mistake. I don't know, uh, you know your personality and what you're like, but I've experienced this many times in my own life where I kind of came from one of those families that always wanted to share their opinions, really strong opinions, and I got to a place where I would push my opinion, and I would push it passionately, and I wanted to people, I want people to know what I believe, and I, you know, I'd want to prove my point, and I had enough situations and enough circumstances where I did that and ended up finding out I was wrong, but I learned to slow down, and I'm still learning what it looks like to, to slow down and like, who am I? Why do I feel like I need to speak up so much? Who am I? Why do I feel like I need to share my opinion so much? And instead of being a great talker, I want to be a great listener. Maybe that experience for James, when he first realized, man, I was wrong. And not only was I wrong, but I was telling other people, it's like, hey, that's my big brother. He's not the Messiah. Don't buy into that. I, I've, see, I've seen him at home. But then James realizes, I was wrong, and not only was I wrong, but I helped other people to not have faith as well. Maybe that's what James is thinking of when he writes in James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Like, don't miss those three words. Like, like write this down, because I've experienced this. Like, take note of this. This is important. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. And slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let me take a 
time out really quick. And for those of you that are new to Trace, I'll do this from time to time. And I want to veer away from my sermon really quick. And sometimes the Lord impresses upon me something to say. And he did when I was looking at this first, specifically because today's Father's Day. Dads, listen up really quick. I know today is about you and it's about celebrating you. But I also want to encourage you and I want to challenge you. For whatever reason, our words matter the most. They just do. I, c- I couldn't tell you why, but our words matter the most. And for those of you in here that have had some harder things said to you from fathers, you understand this. I mean, psychology even understands this. There's a thing called uh, the father wound that is like a theme within psychology today. Our words matter the most. Our words weigh a 1,000 pounds. And so I just want to encourage you to choose those words wisely. And if there's a way for you to remember this, I would encourage you to write this verse down. This verse can be used in all contexts of life, definitely within your marriage, but I specifically want to talk to you as fathers right now. Write this verse down, that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Just a side note. Time in. Can you imagine? Guys, just truly try to t- like take a moment and imagine, what was that encounter like? What was it like when James actually was standing in front of his brother Jesus? All the emotions that were going through him. And again, just a side note, this is why God didn't make me the Messiah. Because if I was Jesus in that moment, I would have like smacked my brother and said, See you idiot, I'm the Messiah, I told you the whole time. But I don't think that's the way Jesus handled things. Here's what I think Jesus probably said, something like this. James, I know you're probably flooded with emotions right now and The last thing I want you to do is to go bury yourself somewhere in isolation and to be discouraged because you messed this one up, because you got this one wrong. Instead, James, what I really want you to do moving forward is I want you to allow this mistake to be put in my hand because in my hands, failure can be reshaped with growth. And my guess is Jesus gave James a a strong encouragement to go and make a difference with this mistake that he'd made. In other words, don't let a good mistake go to waste. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. And as James is navigating through all of those thoughts at some point in his life, when he sits down to write his letter, I believe he's thinking of this right here, James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, because I did, I did. Like, I, man, I missed it. I missed the Messiah. He was in my own brother. I missed it. So if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it'll be given to you. But when you ask, you should believe and not what? Man, you got to know that that is coming from the innermost parts of who James is. Man, you should believe and not doubt. Because I did. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. For those of you that don't know this, James allowed the biggest mistake in his life to be turned into a ministry. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, later martyred for his death. And ultimately, he understood this, and it's our one thing. It's what I want you to walk away with today. Don't let a good mistake go to waste. Because in the hands of Jesus, even missing him as being the Messiah, his very own brother, In the hands of Jesus, our mistakes can be turned into ministry. That's my story, and it could be yours. In the hands of Jesus, our failures can be reshaped as growth. But sometimes we allow ourselves to sit in those for way too long, and it just becomes discouraging. 
and it starts to lead us away from Jesus at times if we're not careful. One of the things that I'm finding myself saying often today when I'm sitting down and I'm counseling people and coaching and mentoring is I talk about this, and it's kind of within the same context. If you don't mind, just go ahead and bounce back to that one thing. Keep it up there for a second. And what I do is I look at people, and I've said this to several of you in this room, don't let a good heart season go to waste. Just let that sink in, because these almost sound like oxymorons, right? I mean, don't let, a, don't let a big mistake, and I think originally I put good mistake, don't let a good mistake go to waste. It sounds like an oxymoron. And when I look at people that are going through difficult seasons, it could be on the other end of a mistake they've made or just a hard season in life. Here's what I, tell, here's what I encourage them with. Guys, this is an opportunity for God to do something in your life that he couldn't have done until you've gone through this situation. Now, I'm not that guy that's going to tell you God caused that, but he's, he's allowed you to go through this season. And if you'll lean in his direction and not away from his direction, this is what could happen. It could cause you to seek the Lord in ways that you didn't even know how to before that experience. This is the same that's true for a mistake. If you screwed up royally in life, you can take and hold on to that and live in the discouragement and even the defeat of that mistake. Or you can allow it to make you pursue the Lord in ways that you didn't know how to until that mistake existed. Does that mean that God wanted you to make that mistake? Absolutely not. He doesn't work in that way. But by making that mistake, by going through that hard season, now there's something new, and it's not, it doesn't necessarily feel good, but there's something new in our life that causes us to seek the Lord in the way that we didn't even know how to before until that particular circumstance existed. This is what James does. And he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And my guess is he becomes probably one of the best apologists of defending that the resurrection actually took place because James could tell people, hey, listen, I was one of those doubters too. He was my very own brother. I denied the fact that he could have been the Messiah for the majority of my life. But one day, I stood in front of a guy that looked a lot like my big brother, and he had holes in his hands and he had holes in his feet. And he told me something like this, James, let me take your failure and let me reshape it as growth. Ultimately, guys, I think the strongest statement almost in all of Scripture that points to the resurrection actually happened is when James sits down and he begins to write his letter. In the very first statement, he says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a.k.a. my big brother. Let's pray. Father, God, in the midst of us making mistakes, in the midst of us missing things that we should have gotten right, I pray that we don't take those particular situations and allow them to defeat us. You give us the promise. You give us a promise in Romans chapter 12 that you'll use all things for good for those who love you and will follow you according to your will and purpose. Literally, you're, you can take the biggest mistakes of our life. You can turn them into ministry. You can take the biggest failures of our life and reshape them into growth. Like, this is what you do. You're in the business of changing lives. You're in the business of transforming lives. But sometimes we still want to take those opportunities away from you. God, I pray that we take a cue here from your half-brother James. Jesus, I pray that you show us that even in the midst of not just not believing in you, but James likely pointed people away from you that there was still redemption even for him and there can be redemption for each and every one of us. 
And so, Lord, whatever it is that we're hanging on to, whatever mistake it could be that we haven't let go of yet and put into your hands, would you just use this story to remind us? It doesn't matter how much we've messed it up in the past. You can do something new in the future, but only if we hand it over to you. So encourage us to do that today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.